Welcome to the You Debate Sports Podcast, the new sports podcast that's bringing the debate to the fans. From football to basketball to baseball, let your voice be heard by joining our community of fans. And now, it's time for your host, Ken Bone. What's up, guys? I'm Ken Bone, and today is April 16th. Welcome to the You Debate Sports Podcast. The NBA playoffs are underway, and today's another great day for baseball. Hopefully we don't get six rainouts and or postponements with the weather delays like we did yesterday. But today we're going to talk about top five Pro Bowl, can't miss NFL prospects in this coming draft, as well as whether or not the Astros are the best pitching staff of all time. But before we do that, I just kind of wanted to talk about LeBron James real quick. After that 18-point loss to the Pacers last night, you know, LeBron's a really polarizing figure. You know, people people either really love him or they really hate him. We're just kind of trying to determine, you know, whether or not LeBron is a good team leader. Not the fact that he's a great community guy. You know, we all know that. We all know how he sticks up in, in politics. We're not getting into that. And not whether or not he's a great player. I mean, it's pretty clear that He's without a doubt a top three player of all time in basketball history. And it also has nothing to do with the fact that the Cavs are still probably the favorites still in the finals. You know, they came in as favorites and just because they have one loss to the Pacers doesn't make them underdogs for the finals now. But something that I did see yesterday was that in the dwindling seconds of the game, probably about five seconds left, time was winding down. All the Cavs players were on the court and LeBron James was being escorted back into the tunnel leaving his team on the court. Obviously disappointed, obviously upset about the loss, but still didn't stay to the end of the game, just went back into the into the clubhouse. The other thing was he didn't really get back on defense at all yesterday in his game. He wasn't guarding Oladipo, the best scorer for the Pacers. And when he would score on offense or get a bad call, he would just complain and then not run run back on defense. And the last thing was when he was in his press conference. He didn't talk about us and how the Cavs as a team are going to regroup and how we need to come together, but just stated that I or he has been down 3-1 before. Not talking about the situation now, but more talking about himself. And all these things just kind of brought to my attention. If you were LeBron's teammate, would you look to him as a good leader? I get it. You know, he definitely has a lot to say with play on the court, with teaching players, you know, where to be, how to do certain things. But in terms of just being a leader on and off the court and a good role model for his teammates, is is LeBron really that great? You know, I want to know what you guys think too. So head on over to our social media, at Udebate Sports on Twitter, on Instagram. You know, this is something I really want to hear your guys' opinion on. Uh, let me know. With that being said, you know, we had to talk about LeBron, of course. But with that being said, uh, we're going to get into our five Pro Bowl NFL draft prospects. So three honorable mentions, three players that, we, you know, we, we watched a film we really liked, but there's just no room for them in this top five. Starting with v- Vita Vea, the defensive tackle for Washington. 350-pound guy, moves, you know, like he's 250. Then there's the versatile secondary player, either an outside corner, inside corner, safety you know, wherever you're going to play, that's Minka Fitzpatrick from Alabama. And then finally, uh, personally, who I think is the best quarterback in this draft, and there's a lot to be said about that because this is a great quarterback class and draft class, uh, but that's Josh Rosen, 
didn't quite make it just because of some of the some of the deep ball concerns and him trying to play hero ball. I think he's the best prospect again, but not good quite good enough to make our top five. So now we'll get into it. Starting with number five, we have the linebacker from Virginia Tech, Tremaine Edmonds. This guy is 6'5", 250 pounds, and likely will play middle linebacker in the NFL, or the Mike linebacker. He has the ability to really play anywhere in the front seven, defensive end, outside linebacker, Sam linebacker, strong side, uh, will, weak side, outside, inside, 4-3 defense, 3-4 defense, really wherever you want to play him. He's, he's that versatile because he has that great size, but he also has elite speed. Um, I just think that the the best position for him is going to be that Mike linebacker because of the fact that he can cover sideline to sideline. Now, we said that he can play anywhere on the front seven. That ex- excludes defensive tackle. One of the biggest things for linebackers is that they make their decision quick and they make their break to the ball. This is so that they don't get big offensive linemen already breaking down on them, bearing down, putting a block on them. And that's exactly what Tremaine does. He sees, he reacts, and he goes. Now, his football instincts, on the other hand, aren't the best. I think that Roquan Smith actually has better football instincts and play recognition. So Tremaine will be taking himself out of some plays as he can kind of guess wrong and put himself out of position. But I'd rather have a player that overcommits than a player that doesn't commit at all. And with this commitment, he can lead to some serious pressure in the backfield in the run game as he led Virginia Tech in tackles for a loss behind the line of scrimmage. And then when it comes to coverage... He can cover both tight ends and running backs because of his combination of size and speed. You know, he's got that hip mobility to where he can turn and be shifty and change the directions with the running backs, but he's also got that size and the strength to go down the field with tight ends in coverage. He's also uh, one of the big things for linebackers is a lot of them are afraid of the offensive line because they're a little bit smaller than the defensive linemen. They don't like to get hit with those blocks from the guys up front, but Tremaine doesn't really shy away from that he goes and that's why he's so effective in the run game is because he's effective around the line of scrimmage and he's not afraid moving on to our fourth can't miss pro bowl prospect and uh, some of you guys might think this is a little low but this is where i think that he should be and that is penn state running back saquon barkley now saquon barkley is clearly the best running back in this class i mean it's not really that close although i think Ronald Jones is another good running back, um, Darius Geis, Sony Michelle. Those guys are all great running backs, but I think that Saquon is head and shoulders above the rest of his class. And a lot of that is because of his balance. He keeps his nose over his toes. He's able to make those cuts, break down his feet. And there's some game film where you're just baffled because of the moves that he can make and how his feet and hips and, and how it all moves. And then on top of that, you know, he goes to the combine Runs a 4-4-40, puts up 29 reps on the bench, and has a 41-inch vertical. Insane numbers. Absolutely insane. But the other thing that helps him out is not only his athleticism, but his vision. He can see you know, where he wants to go, how he wants to cut, uh, if a, a linebacker flashes in the hole, that he can bounce it out. But that leads to one of the problems is he, he trusts his feet a little bit too much. You know, He runs a little bit east to west, trying to get make big plays. And you can, you can definitely get away with that at the college level, especially with the kind of athlete that, that Barkley is. But I just want to see a little bit of more of that north and south running. Not to say that he can't do that. Not at all. But I just want to see a little bit more of that. He's also, I mean, he's on this list because he's a Pro Bowl prospect. 
can't miss. He's also a more elusive back than he is powerful. You know, he's going to, again, because of that balance, he's going to be able to evade would-be tacklers who are going to miss altogether, or they're just going to miss on arm tackles. But once he's wrapped up, he's not really that much of a strong finisher. He's a strong runner, but he's not a strong finisher. And this is kind of nitpicking, I mean, again, for the best running back in the draft. And his blocking will need a little bit of work, but the fact that he's improved so much from his sophomore year is an immensely positive sign. Now moving on to number three, we have the safety from the Florida State Seminoles, Derwin James. What puts Derwin above Minka Fitzpatrick is the fact that his size and his athleticism are just that much better. Derwin James is about 6'3", 210 pounds. Minka is about 6'1". Not that that's the only deciding factor, but that's definitely a huge plus. He also tested better at the combine. He moves great for a guy his size, and that's something that's really going to be taken advantage of in any team that he goes to in, in the secondary. Now again, just like Tremaine Edmonds, Derwin has the ability to play just about any secondary position, whether it be free safety, strong safety, slot corner, maybe outside corner. I think he could possibly play out there, but he can even play, I could see him playing linebacker. I don't think that'll happen, but he's got the size and the strength to be able to do that. Derwin's a big hitter. He loves to play in the run game, plays super downhill, and he's always causing havoc at the line of scrimmage. I mean, you could set him up, let's just say, for instance, for the Raiders, you got Khalil Mack rushing on the edge, and then you got Derwin James coming right behind him. I mean, that's scary, especially sending him on blitzes. He could cause havoc in the past rush game. The one thing, the one knock against Derwin was that he looked lost on some plays. Uh, he looked like he didn't know where he was going or that he didn't know what to do. Not on all of them, a very select few plays, but still looked a little bit lost. And I think the reasoning for that is because he didn't have a set position. You know, he literally played all these positions that we're talking about in college. And I think that once he gets to the NFL, he'll have more of a set position, whether it be strong safety whether it be free safety, maybe even a corner, he'll have that position and he'll get coached up on that position alone, not on four or five different positions at once. So that's why Derwin's the number three can't-miss prospect in this draft. Takes us down to our number two can't-miss prospect, and that's Bradley Chubb, the defensive end from NC State. 6'5", again, plus size, plus speed, and he gets off the ball super quick. Great to the point of attack. And he's got that strong initial punch. He's a huge hitter. He's probably the best, not probably, he's definitely the best pass rusher in this draft. And he still plays hard against the run. You know, he can set the edge, get off blocks, make the tackle. But in the pass game, he's a really good hand fighter. Great hand technician. Once again, he's got that great initial punch to get separation with the offensive lineman. He needs to put together a few more moves in combination. You know, he's got the swim move. And he can rush you upfield and cut back. But this is kind of nitpicking again. That would just put him over the top in terms of the draft class. He's still a phenomenal defender. Moves his hips great. You know, he gets around that edge and then he can dip his hips. He's flexible around the corner. And just take that straight shot to the quarterback. I see him being the defensive end in probably a 4-3 defense. You know, he could line up as the 5-tech, 3-tech. Even possibly, I think he could be getting a, a 3-4 defense uh, as a 3-tech, but probably more more in a 4-3. And then that takes us to our number one prospect in the draft, and that's clearly the guard from Notre Dame, Quentin Nelson. He has just absolutely rare power. Uh, 
uh, picking guys up, moving them three yards back, quick set, drops his hips. You know, nobody's getting to the quarterback with this guy. This is a guy that you can plug into your offensive line, leave him there, and just not worry about it. You don't even have to worry about the position because he's just going to be that effective. Most of the time with his strength, he win, he's able to win the leverage battle. But even in the few times that he isn't, he's still able to get off an effective block because of his strength. And even when his hands are outside, he doesn't always get his hands inside like you're supposed to for an offensive lineman to really drive back and drive through. But even when his hands are outside, I mean, he's still, like I said, he's picking guys up. He's moving them three yards back. And then you got your left tackle and right tackle. Uh, left tackle's Mike McGlitchie, another another prospect. Don't really know who the right tackle is. But these dudes are, you know, drop-stepping, kicking three yards back to try to give themselves some space and some time to react. Nelson just one step, quick set, drops his butt, boom, you're not moving. That's how strong he is. He doesn't even need all that space, all that reaction time. He just, boom, quick set, drops his butt, and gets you. And then even when he gets beat, he has the strength to recover. But the main thing, while he's a good pass blocker, he's extremely aggressive at the point of attack in the run game. He's super eager to just hit somebody. He's just always looking to hit somebody. On a screenplay we saw in the film, it was tough for him to let the rusher come through because he just wanted to block them that bad. So he was running out looking for the next person to hit. And even when he puts you on the ground, you know, he's a bad dude. He'll, he'll put you down even more. Like, he'll lay on top of you to make sure you don't get up. And I think he's, without a doubt, the best offensive line prospect at any position in the last decade. I mean, that's the kind of rare power that this guy has. And frankly, him being number one on this list, it's not even close. The other guys, you could possibly move around a little bit. You know, Derwin and, and Chubb, even Barkley could be at number two. Those those two through five guys, they're pretty set, but they can, in the fact that they are all two through five, but you could kind of move them around a little bit. You know, Edmonds all the way up to two, Barkley up to two, Chubb down to five. Derwin, he, he's about right at three, but wherever you really want to put him, Nelson is without a doubt number one. Immovable. You can't really move him. But that's our opinion at Base Sports. I want you guys to let us know. I'm going to put out a tweet today of our top five prospects. Reply to that tweet. Quote that tweet with your top five can't-miss prospects for this NFL draft. Now I wanted to get into... Uh, a baseball topic right quick when we think about the best pitching staffs of all times the 90s Braves come up with Maddox Schmoltz and Glavin Maddox being a top five arguably the best pitcher of all time John Schmoltz a hall of famer in his own right and Tom Glavin in his own right one of the most underrated lefties of all time over 300 wins and you had a great career after the Braves with the New York Mets then you have the 1966 Dodgers with Sandy Koufax, and with his best season having an ERA under two, throwing over 300 innings. And then right behind him, Don Drysdale, one of the meanest pitchers pitching inside with that heavy sinker of his low three-quarter arm action. Him and Koufax actually arguably the best one-two combination in baseball history, followed by another Hall of Famer in Don Sutton and closing out the rotation with Claude Austin. You know, not a lot of people know about Claude, but Claude... Claude was to be a number four pitcher at that time. He had to be special. 
because a lot of teams only had three-man rotations with with guys throwing 300 innings. And Claude Olsen was able to be a fourth man in that rotation that was absolutely outstanding. But now we come to 2018, and there might be another all-time great pitching staff. And we're going to see, you know, are the 2018 Astros the best pitching staff ever? Clearly, they're led by Justin Verlander. 2011 Cy Young and MVP award winner. He is 11 and 1 since his trade to the Astros last year. And he's, you know, he's got that fastball that he can reach back and get up to the high 90s even late in the game. You know, he starts out about 93 to 95 and then gets it up there even 97, 99 in the later innings. And the big thing that Verlander changed when he came over to the Astros last season was he really tightened up his slider. That slider's become a wipeout pitch. You know, he's always have the, had the curveball. The changeup, he throws not much, but it's still there. But that slider, tightening up that slider's been a game changer for him. Inside the lefties, away to righties, it's been a real wipeout strikeout pitch for him. And then right behind Verlander, you have the soft-throwing lefty in Dallas Keuchel, 2015 Cy Young Award winner. He is one of the most deceptive lefties in the game, and it's shown by the fact that he doesn't throw above maybe maybe 91 maybe he touches that once in a game but he rarely ever breaks 90 sits 87 to 89 but the thing that makes Keichel so great is he makes his pitches look like balls and then they become strikes and he makes them look like strikes and they become balls for guys that don't throw very hard usually they throw a lot of strikes you know there's that crazy stat about Greg Maddox only having 303 ball counts in his career and 100 and 80 of them or so are intentional walks. Keichel doesn't do that. Keichel throws a lot of balls, but he's able to get you to get yourself out as a hitter. And one of the things that makes this 1-2 combo so great is the, the difference in stuff. Justin Verlander, high high 90s fastball from the right side, and then you got a soft throwing lefty on the other side with lots of movement. Pretty deceptive if you see Justin Verlander one day as a hitter and Dallas Keichel the next. I mean... Not even close. Then the big trade that the Astros got this offseason, arguably one of the best moves of the offseason, and that was Garrett Cole, starting pitcher from the Pittsburgh Pirates. He was the first overall pick out of UCLA. He was part of arguably the best college pitching staff of all time with him and Trevor Bauer. Obviously Cole went number one, and then Bauer clearly went number three to the Diamondbacks, and Bauer's having a great career in his own right. But the stuff that Cole possesses is unlike anybody else in baseball. He throws 100 miles an hour, but instead of like Justin Verlander, who's just straight and almost seems to rise, Cole throws that upper 90s fastball with movement and run. He's got that wipeout slider again like Justin Verlander. And I think that having him in the rotation with JV is going to be great for his career because he's going to be able to learn from a veteran pitcher. Although Cole's not young anymore. And then there's Lance McCullers. Another guy that throws in the mid to high 90s. Probably the best knuckle curve in the game, as he showed it when he threw 27 straight against the Dodgers in the World Series in that three innings of relief. But the Astros actually even have a fifth starter, and that's Charlie Morton. Morton was one of the better relievers in the World Series last year, and he has an upper 90 fastballs again, but this dude has major run on his pitches. When he was with Pittsburgh... He used to only throw in the low 90s with a little bit of run. But the adjustment that he made was he was able to stay close and stay on his pitches longer, which enables him to get that extra velocity and sink 
rather than run. But all these pitchers, all these great pitchers with all this great stuff and great years of experience doesn't really mean anything if it's just on paper. They have to put it into use. And that's exactly what they've done so far in the 2018 season. Astros starting pitching is second in ERA and second in strikeouts. Obviously, they're led by Justin Verlander. Verlander's ERA this year is 1.35, and he's already 2-0. He's got 35 strikeouts, 34, excuse me, in 26 innings pitched, and he only has 5 walks. That's a strikeout-to-walk ratio of 7. Elite. Then, we have Garrett Cole, who's 1-0, with a 1.29 ERA. 36 Ks in 21 innings pitched. These two dudes alone have struck out over 70 batters in just 40 innings. And then the last pitcher that we mentioned was Charlie Morton. He's 2-0. He's got a 1.00 ERA, the lowest of the staff, with 25 Ks again and 18 innings pitched. But even with all this success that they've had, even with the second-best ERA as a pitching staff in the major leagues, two of their best guys have had terrible starts. We look at Keiko, who's 0-2, with a 4.2 ERA. Now, is that going to stay for long? Probably not. You know, he's probably going to be right there in that that 2-3 to three role, possibly moves behind Cole. But he's still an elite pitcher. And then we have Lance McCullers, who's really struggled, with a 1-1 one one record and a 7.71 ERA. Now, this is a small sample size. McCullers' ERA and Keiko's ERA could be inflated just because there haven't been that many games. And giving up a few runs in a few innings is going to make your ERA look awful. But then again, the same could be said for Verlander, Cole, and Morton. Their success has just been over a short period of time. However, if Verlander, Cole, and Morton, obviously they're not going to keep up the same exact excellent success that they have now, but if they're able to keep pitching well, and one of the two guys that have been struggling, whether it be Keichel or McCullers, probably Keichel would be more likely. If they can turn it around, is that the best pitching staff of all time? I know it's really tough to compete with the Braves and and Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale is probably the best one-two combination in the history of baseball. But nobody's quite had that five-man depth that the Astros have this year with Verlander, Cole, Keuchel, McCullers, Charlie Morton. Do we think that they're the best staff of all time? It's yet to be seen. They've got to perform. It's only really 20 games into the season. But do they have an argument for it? Are they one of the best on paper? Absolutely. It's yet to be seen whether they can put it into action and keep the longevity just like the 90s Braves did or have the insane success of the 1966 Dodgers. So let us know. We have a debate on our website of the best pitcher in baseball history. Go over to that article. It's under the sports tab and then the baseball tab on our website, and that's udebatesports.com. Let us know who you think the best pitching staff ever is, whether you think it's the Braves in the 90s, the Dodgers in 66, or whether you think that the 2018 Astros and what they've been able to accomplish and what they will be able to accomplish can ever surpass those two teams. And that's all we got for today's episode, guys. Thanks again for listening. I know there's so many other podcasts that you guys could listen to. Thanks for tuning in today. Make sure to DM us on Twitter or Instagram. Check out our website at udebatesports.com. DM us any topics that you guys would like to have up for discussion or any questions that you guys have for the podcast. And until next time, happy debate. Peace.